0: Hey everybody, welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of Mile Marker. My co-host is Judd Mackerel, co-founder of Milemarker as well. Connected is a show about the people and technologies that are shaping and building the wealth management industry. More people than ever are searching for great financial advice, and more firms than ever are trying to figure out how to scale their operations to serve those who are searching for their advice. We believe that better connected technology provides the space for better connected people, which leads to better advice. Welcome to Connected. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt. I'm joined by Judd Mackerel and our guest, Steve Zushin, today. Connected is a show about the people and technologies that are shaping and building the wealth management industry. More people than ever are searching for great financial advice, and more firms than ever are trying to figure out how to scale their operations to serve those people that are searching for their advice. We believe that better connected technology provides the space for better connected people, which leads to better advice because investors deserve the undivided dedication and attention of their financial
1: advisors. Welcome to Connected. Awesome. Well, Steve, you want to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about who you are, what you're doing here, what you're working on, and maybe like how you got here.
2: Man. So, well, Steve Zushin, Chief Revenue Officer at Mammoth, big fan of you guys. So... Judd Mackerel, Kyle Van Pelt, I'm like super big fans and really excited to be on the podcast with you. The way I started in this industry is funny. So I was actually on wait list to go to NYU, moved to New York City from California and got involved, met socially this guy who was working on a risk management tool. And I I could rehearse basic like economics 101 information to him and follow a little bit of information. And then he knew I could sell. So he's like, man, do you want to try and sell software? And so I got involved with Hidden Levers when they were in a technology incubator in New York City. Raj and Praveen Bolt, the two founders, were like, give us one year before you go to grad school. Give us one year. And here I am over 12 years later, and I haven't gone to grad school yet. (laughs) Oh, man. Probably a good decision, though. I think that worked out for you. I just thanked Raj recently for that advice, man. He was 100% right. If I would have decided to go to grad school, I would have been in a much better position to benefit from it. But I decided not to. Yeah. I so love here it. we are. So, Steve, you had
0: a great LinkedIn post the other day about having a unique last name. And I would love just to spend a couple, like one, I would love to hear what are some of the craziest pronunciations you've heard of your name with people attempting. And just to elaborate a little bit
2: about why it's cool to have a unique last name. I loved that post. Yeah. So, Zushin is the correct pronunciation. The most common mispronunciation is zushin, but probably because of like spell check, I get zucchini, which is <laughs> just always gonna ask fun. If you
0: get zucchini a lot, I feel like that would happen.
2: Yeah, I think when people type it into a computer or phone or something, auto corrects to zucchini, especially when they're trying to guess the spelling. So that's a pretty fun one. And then zushin, that's another good one. And then I've had a lot of people who just go zush and then they give up, like mid mid pronunciation. So these are the fun ones. And kind of what happened with that kind of spurred that LinkedIn post, Kyle, was I was traveling that day and I was checking into the hotel. And me and the woman at the hotel had like some pretty good banter where she was trying to guess my last name. You know, it just it reminded me that we always have an opportunity. Like we always have an opportunity to kind of wear life like a loose garment where we get to enjoy how we walk through our lives. And far too often, I think we take ourselves too seriously. And that we have like our agenda where we need to power through. It's it's nice to be able to have something like a unique last name where you can have a little game on the fly and just have fun. You know, I think that's why we're here. Oh, I love it. It's great.
0: So this show is called Connected, and you know it's about how we can better help advisors connect their technology so that they can scale their operations so that they can ultimately connect better with their clients. Because I think if we get technology out of the way, what really matters is us connecting with other humans. And Steve, I think you have always been someone that I have admired or looked up to at how well you connect with other people. I would love for you to just riff a little bit on what do you think connection means with other people like strangers through a unique last name and what can advisors learn about how to better connect with other people so that they can deliver better financial advice?
2: Wow, man, that's like a, that's like a really big question. I've been accused my whole life, Kyle, that it's kind of come naturally for me to, you know, to be a relationship builder. I think that's been one of my superpowers and it's not by design. And so you know, I've been able to build a career on that. It's not to say that that is the career itself, but for me, almost every job, I've, actually every job I've ever had has been through relationships. I've never applied for a job and gotten it. Even most recently, the the last six years I spent at LifeField was through a recruiter that I built a relationship that got introduced to me, which brought me into the opportunity at LifeField and made that introduction. And I think that even the founders there would say that they chose me, over the other candidates because I connected well with them during the interview process. The MO for me has always just been about being genuine and being open and being human. Kind of like with my unique class name, when I uh, am able to have that little banter, I think it's about being approachable. You know, I've had the opportunity to lead a lot of teams and I've always been in that leadership, like about team building and about being vulnerable and about getting down on someone's level. And I feel like when we enter into an engagement with any, whether it's a stranger or a friend or an acquaintance, we just always are left with a better outcome, always. And even if that's just me building a connection with someone, that's enough.
0: Yeah. So that's awesome. So out of that, if an advisor asked you, Hey, how do I better connect with my clients? What would you tell them?
2: I'd tell them a first, want to be genuine. We want to start with being genuine about the value that we're going to offer in that relationship. So when advisors are starting to build this practice with their clients, I think that you take the whole marketing angle about marketing to the people you want to work with, who you can best identify with. But beyond that, it's about having a real definition about the value you're bringing to that relationship and a realistic view on what that value is. So being able to articulate that to a new client that you're trying to deepen that relationship with, this is the value that I'm bringing to this. And I'm going to do it as a human and I'm going to bring Steve Zush into the table. I'm not just going to be some robot that's here to deliver financial advice. I think that's the quickest way into this. And we see it all the time. We see it with whole practices that have a whole team-based mentality where each person can be their own contributing factor to the relationships on how a client served in that practice. And those tend to have the best results, right? Where people feel like they're part of the team rather than a client of the company or a client of the firm. We always see the best results with that
0: yeah i love that i was talking to somebody the other day just about what it's like to be a financial advisor nowadays there's technology everybody sort of has the same types of technology we got portfolio accounting tool we've got financial planning tool we've got all that stuff and the punchline of all of it was the single biggest point of differentiation is the advisor themselves and what they're doing to work on themselves and what they're doing to connect with their clients to connect with the industry to connect with their partners because every other firm is really using the same tools, they're using the same portals, they're using the same everything else. That we everybody jokes, they all have lighthouses on their websites or they have people walking on the beach, right? So at the end of the day, connection and you being a genuine person and being a human—that is really the biggest and arguably the only point of differentiation now for an advisor. Judd, Steve, I'd love to just toss it over to you guys of. Well, how can we help technology get out of the way more so that we can focus more on the human, which is the true point of differentiation as being an advisor so that they can grow their business as well?
1: I think we all are going through like just our own natural maturity as people and people in our craft, people, you know, that have families or have responsibilities like we're all going through different things. And I think that it has a tendency to help us to see things a lot more clearly as we get older. And hopefully in that, like, I think we are hopefully achieving more authenticity to that. But I think as we are in our work, in our businesses, practices, firms, whatever it would be, I think my hope is that people are able to take time to actually just not to become so unprofessional that it isn't becoming, you know what I mean? Like, we still have to, like, be presentable. Financial advisors aren't walking around in sweatpants and, like, you know, just not caring about themselves. We need to, at the same time, not be pretentious and not be somebody that is who we think somebody wants us to be, but to be somebody who we really are. I think that is just a a part of maturity and a part of just being honest and leaning into that. And then if we care so much about our clients, we're going to spend so much time with our clients that we're going to start to like really feel like our clients. And, you know, people use this idea of like shepherding. A shepherd literally like lived with his sheep or her sheep, out in the pasture or the field or whatever, they're there. They smell like the sheep. They are just around them. They're immersed in it. They have this like innate sense about the personality of their sheep. They know the one that goes goes on their own adventure. And they know the one that's smarter or not as smart or, you know, is the entertainer or whatever. I think that if we embrace the immersion that really comes with truly serving people, truly doing the work, it allows us to be free to be who we are. And who we are often is this reflective. Thing about the needs of our clients, and it's really special, and it's not something that you can just flip a switch. Certainly, you have people that just more innately care, but I think that it's still a process, and so that's kind of my feedback as you guys are talking about this. Like that's what comes to mind for me is like that is how maturation can sometimes happen, and really that's kind of at the center of where the magic happens in this space. Is when you start to really care, and that you really understand and you really solution things in more and more meaningful ways for people. So
0: I love that. Steve, if I'm an advisor and I come to you and I say, that sounds awesome. I'd love to be able to care more deeply, build those genuine relationships with my clients. But geez, I feel like I've got 26 hours worth of work for a 24 hour day. I'm messing with all this technology. I'm chasing down paperwork, managing my team. My team's gotten bigger than I ever thought it was going to be. Like it just feels like there's so many things in the way of me caring for my clients and caring about my clients. I do the reviews, I care, you know, the work I'm doing is for my clients, but sometimes it feels like being able to genuinely connect with them takes a backseat to all of the work I have to do for them. You know, what would you say to that advisor? How would you encourage them, you know, for things that they should change, you know, start, stop, continue doing all of that fun stuff on how they can get more efficient? and scale a little bit so that they can get back to truly connecting with and caring about their clients.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a whole like consulting type role that we could do here. And it would start by just examining the 26 hours worth of work to prioritize based on value there. And a lot of it is going to be, it's going to come down to kind of fumbling around with technology. That's not necessarily in your wheelhouse or not necessarily a high value item that you're trying to do. So, I mean, we hear it all the time. You have great relationship managers, great account executives who are awesome with clients and then they're sitting there trying to fumble around with like managing portfolios and building model portfolios and doing investment due diligence. This is totally something that you can outsource and get the same amount of value for your clients and spend that time doing what you do and what you love and where you get your energy from in your business or vice versa. You have investment management folks who are sitting there tracking down, trying to do the relationship management where you know, Really, the clients are just looking for you to make great investment decisions for them. So it's about delegating across your team. But we all, everybody on this call, and so many probably the listeners have grown up in this wealth management era where um, we've had this best in breed explosion of technology where advisors have been inundated with choice around really curating the technology that they use to run their practice. And I think what that's caused is a lot of headaches around integration and maintaining data, maintaining the accuracy of data across systems. Every time now, when they go to run a proposal, if you're using this best in breed and you have stitched together all of these different systems, you kind of need to double check everything on the proposal for accuracy. You know, I would say that that's probably a pretty low priority use of time. Even if you're using, you know, a newer or lower level partner in your firm, maybe even interns, like they could probably be doing more valuable work for you than just double checking every proposal before it goes out the door. So I think it all boils down that there's a massive opportunity in our space around integration. When I'm servicing a client, I'm a big believer and have been over the last decade that in order for fiduciaries to do their job and to play their role, they need to have a very clear view of all of the assets across the household. You know, a household could be loosely defined, but what we're talking about is all of the assets under the umbrella of the clients that you're serving. And without that, it's pretty hard to do a great job. And there's been a lot of tools that have emerged over the last decade to help us get that view. But now we also need to act on it. Now that we have the view, what are we doing to make sure to ensure that we're delivering the best outcomes for those clients, whether it's around financial planning, investment management, investment selection? The recommendations that we're making, there's so much of the integration and data work there that there's just a huge opportunity for advisors to actually now start outsourcing that and um, just do what they want to do, which is serve that household and deliver the best outcomes rather than fumbling around with making systems match up. Talk about that a little bit, about how would they outsource that? Outsourcing the integration work is one thing. So, I mean, there's a lot of outsourced CTOs out there now. And I don't want to speak for mile marker, but I know that there's a good opportunity here where, you know, you can curate your own experience. So if you want to go the best in breed route and you know exactly what you want to deliver and you don't want to fumble around, there are people who can help you stitch those things together and give you the correct outcome. There's this whole explosion of fractional work. So when it comes to developers, I know wealth management and advisors, we're not necessarily the the most tech savvy group but there are a lot of developers who have a great domain expertise that are available. We don't need full-time developers on our teams within an RIA, a standard RIA. We don't need to have a development team, but we could probably use one 10 hours a week. So this is a whole emerging sector within our industry that we can tap into people who have domain expertise. They know our CRMs. They know our portfolio management systems. They know the type of data that we're dealing with. They know the security concerns. And they can really just fast track us so now again we can focus on what we want to do which is delivering the best outcomes to the households we serve Jen and i've been talking about
0: this a lot it's really interesting how much outsourced asset management has grown and it's almost like an accepted practice now for a majority of the space like oh why wouldn't you outsource this and we're seeing a lot of that fractional stuff like you're talking about shout out to brian portnoy with the outsource chief behavioral officer and there's a lot of other things but we just started asking well why are we outsourcing technology then? You know, I think technology provides more frustration than the asset management stuff or any of these other things that it does, but yet everybody's still trying to run that in-house, you know, and they're expected to manage people on their staff to run these things, they're expected to understand how all of it works so they can manage these people and make sure it's great. And I really do believe that this is an opportunity now to be able to say here's the stack that we want to run. Here's the partners that we've selected. And we want to outsource the integration of that, the management of that, and the running of that for our firm. And we will manage an outsource partner who are truly experts. And I really love that you brought that up because I think we're seeing that across the industry. Uh, And the trend that you brought up that I think is right is so many of these things, advisory firms, big and small, only need those roles for a, you know just a small portion of the time but yet they're trying to hire a cto for example that's maybe they need a cto 10 hours a week but they're hiring a full-time person and trying to figure out how that person should be spending their time or you know they're hiring a full-time chief investment officer maybe they don't need that and i think RIAs is more than anything are just great candidates for the fractional org chart rolled out where you have true dialed in experts that can come in, can do exactly what your firm needs, but you only need a couple hours a week of those experts' time, rather than trying to figure out full-time work for them and full-time spend. So, John, I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit on that. Why is this trend coming so fast for RIAs to outsource executive roles,
1: you know, and fractional work for a lot of the things in their firm? I think we see increased awareness about the different things that we need to do in our practice. And we, if, let's just, for a second, back up and think about the idea of being a fiduciary. And I thought about this a lot in my prior time at Carson and serving all the advisors there and working there to help make our offer more and more rich. Once you identify yourself as a fiduciary, it means that you you are morally obligated and professionally obligated to do us in the best interest of your client, you know, even when it doesn't benefit you. They think that is really this ethical bond that we that we hold to. And then when you become aware of the things that would make your client's life better, would help them through different situations, you now then also have a moral obligation to like, how do you operationalize that? So if behavioral finance is like a really nice emerging, you know, area of our Industry and you know you see people like Brian Portnoy and Daniel Crosby and others that have known reputations in this space and there's a lot more out there that people that I don't know yet that I'm sure are doing great work. You know how do we integrate that into our firms? The fractional idea actually gives you the ability to really start to to understand what that is and you get to learn from somebody that's doing this operationally a lot of places, and so you can level up rapidly. Versus, you know, if you or I, you know, the three of us, we go to the job boards or we call the, you know, the University of Georgia, Kyle, where you're at, or Steve, you got your picking of the top universities in the country in the Boston area. And I got called, called to Charleston. That's about all I got here. We have, we have these programs and we can go find somebody locally that, you know, maybe has a PhD or is a PhD candidate or somebody like that, that might be able to be good. But the problem is that as the leader of the firm, I am the limiting factor on you know, what am I asking this person to do? But if I have somebody seasoned, they're gonna say, Judd, just you know, this is what we do here. This is the playbook we run with clients, and this is how we help people. And now you can directly experience that and you level up at such a rapid pace. You can declare that person on your org chart, on your collateral. They don't have to be. You don't know, have to say they're fractional, even like they represent you. This has been done for CCOs, for chief compliance officers. It's done all over the country already for chief investment officers. Same deal. It's a really nice way for you to complement your org chart to represent what you care about without getting upside down on some sort of investment or to put yourself as a leader in the wrong seat where you're managing somebody that has a total different competency that you would actually be limiting by your in the moment, inadequacies, whether that's time, understanding, vision, whatever it would be, it's a pretty superior model from mm. what, what I've experienced.
2: I'll add on there that there's a little nuance here, Kyle, that you know we've seen outside of our industry, but this like explosion in like gig type work. I think that there's an important differentiator here that we're not talking about hiring someone for a gig for a finite period of time. I think that it's about building partnerships and whether we're talking about adding someone to our org chart to fulfill a certain need fractionally or partnering with a service provider or a technology platform that you're going to operate your business on. And so this mindset of treating that as a partnership is mutually beneficial and long term, I think is a important mindset because I know when we talk about this with advisors, sometimes it's thought of as like this gig. It's a finite period of time to accomplish a certain goal. And every time that happens, it never works out well. It never works out well. I mean, we saw Salesforce try and enter into the wealth management space and advisors would buy Salesforce. And then all of a sudden, they're stuck with hiring consultants to make Salesforce work. And that wasn't expected. That caused Salesforce to turn around and create something unique for financial services. But there was a long period of time there where that wasn't the case, right? And that's that type of oh i'm gonna hire a consultant to build out my Salesforce instance the way i want it and then it's going to be done like no that doesn't work
0: yeah and by the way even with that financial services cloud that they built specifically for the industry people are still using consultants every single day to continue to make it what they want it to be which i think is great is you know they're committed to something but yeah they're still leveraging effectively staff to help them turn that into what it needs to be? Because they certainly don't have the people who are going to do that. Or is that the highest and best use of the people on staff's time
2: that they have? The financial services cloud just set the expectation that you're going to need a consultant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, Mark Benioff knows what he's doing, folks.
0: But that's actually a great segue into, we haven't talked about Mammoth a ton here. So, For something that should be outsourced, I mean, listen, alternative investments are exploding. and We've known that. I mean, but I've even in conversations I've had with leaders of firms, they're starting to think about target allocations for alternative investments across clients that meet a certain suitability, but it's no longer really becoming a nice to have or an option. But a lot of people are starting to think, hey, this is almost a requirement of a good portfolio for a lot of people. And that theory seems to be growing and people love alternatives for the returns that they get for the you know the exclusivity there's a lot of psychological things that make people feel great about getting into those deals but still today managing and dealing with alternative investments is arguably the largest headache in the space for both fund managers and for advisors and those who invest in it People love to get into that sweet private deal, but then when the K ones come calling or the capital calls or all of that stuff, it's still extremely difficult on the back end. So talk to us a little bit about how Mammoth is solving that and what you guys are seeing across the space. Cause there's lots of companies popping up in the alternative space, trying to solve different portions of these problems. I think this is a good opportunity for people to understand what is Mammoth doing to help make this easier for people so that they can use them more and not create more headaches.
1: So, just full disclosure, I am, you know, co-founder in Mammoth as well, and so an investor and all that fun stuff. The thing that I've found, you know, mostly is that I think most advisors that are kind of along in their career, they've had a lot of success, they have a successful multi-million-dollar a year business, wind up getting into alts somewhat accidentally, and that is really chasing like, how do I add more value to my clients? My client wants to do this. So I want to be able to serve them well. They wind up administering a private deal or creating a private fund, then with that comes a slog of work and things like that, that just are not scalable, that a lot of the wealth management technology today is not really built for that. You'll have family office level technology and you have technology like Adapar that I think have more of a bias toward private capital and private wealth in general, and, and really the nuances around it. But then other stuff is just, it's not as easy. It's not really hand in glove. And then there's a whole aspect of tax management, K1 reporting, like you said, Kyle, capital calls, distributions, all that kind of stuff. And how do you manage that at scale uh, is certainly another thing. And then if you have that fund, how are you managing that? You have both clients and you have LPs and how do you put that together? Then finally, if you are providing financial advice across all this stuff, how are you collecting and billing on this stuff? And doing that simply in a way that keeps you scalable. These are things that are core problems for just more straightforward advisory firms. And they become compounded as we have this whole aggregation movement happening where you're buying books of business or seeking to buy books of business. And you're saying, hey, this firm has 400 different positions in private deals. And now we are going to inherit this and we're going to have to figure it out. And so it gives a lot of heartburn all the way through. And uh, those are certainly major areas that Mammoth is focusing on to help solution and scale for firms.
2: I'll echo. I think that Judd nailed it. I love this language that a lot of advisors are accidentally managing alternatives. And Kyle, you raised a point earlier, there's this whole idea of private equity or private debt, private credit. And people like the idea of these alternatives and get excited about being included in something that's private and not necessarily public. That's not the private equity fund. It's the, I got pre-IPO on SpaceX. It's being able to tell a story of something that you connect with, that you're excited about. I think that happens. And as a result of that happening, most of these relationships occur directly with the investor. And simultaneously, as successful people out there are getting introduced to these opportunities, and they're using their own capital to take advantage of these, we have an advisory or a wealth management industry that is constantly trying to increase the size of the clients that they attract. There's very few firms out there who are saying, I just want to work only with mass affluent, right? Everybody's trying to grow with their clients and to attract higher net worth clients. And what we see today is that a lot of these firms are starting to meet this threshold where they're attracting high net worth or even ultra high net worth clients and prospects. Those clients come with alternative investments that they've already made. And so whether you're working with clients who want to make those investments or you're working with clients who already have, how do we help insert the advisor at the center of that relationship? Because again, if we go back to, if I'm a fiduciary and I want to give the best possible outcomes to the clients that I serve, I need to have the appropriate view of the entire household. And so at Mammoth, we're primarily focused at how do we bring the advisor back to the center of all of these engagements and take, again, operationalize that for the advisor so that they're not fumbling over themselves like, wow, now I have to deal with all this stuff that I'm unfamiliar with and is not my expertise just to attract these clients. No, and you can outsource that. And Mammoth aims to be you know the service desk for you for all of your alternative needs. Oh, I love that.
0: Because I think we, we talk about this a lot, but it's
2: kind of my soapbox.
0: I think so many advisory firms are run as if the only thing that they work with are ETFs and mutual funds and bonds and things that you can just easily buy using a rebalancing tool or going to the custodian. But that's just not the reality of how most of these things work. And so what happens is the well-integrated pieces of their business are around the ETFs and the bonds and things like that. But then when you got to deal with insurance, life insurance, annuities, disability, those are all off in little silos and corners. When you get to the alternative things, those are all off in silos and little corners. And it's really hard to get those into the main workflow streams that people are using today. And that's what we see at Milemarker all the time, you know, when businesses are less than simple. Well, that's where all the frustration on, you know, quote unquote, lack of integration comes into play. I don't think anybody would tell you that they have poor integration between their portfolio management tool and the ETFs they've bought for their clients at the custodian. That integration is fantastic. I think the challenge is much more about what about all of this other stuff and how do we get that? Because that's my business. You know, all of that is my business too. And how do we get that in there? I think Mammoth is doing a great job of helping people get their alternative investments out of a silo and i really love the point you made about people are already coming with their alternative investments when you a them over so how do we deal with that how do we get something like that integrated into our workflow especially if you're just starting to work with it i think mammoth is a great partner there
2: yep one of our partners always likes to say they're going to make these investments with or without you so do you want to be involved in that exchange do you want to play a role do you want to add value and service or do you want to just let that happen on the sidelines? I mean, both could be a direction that you choose to go, but if you want to be involved, you're going to need a partner like Mammoth to help you to help orchestrate that.
1: And I think the thing that's interesting is like if you don't have high net worth clients today and you're looking to get high net worth clients, being able to to service private deals and alternatives is an imperative. People want a differentiated investment experience. And if they want, you know, straightforward ETFs and things like that, and that's, that's what they're aspiring to, they're going to struggle to find value with you as an advisor. But if you can think about tax, whether it's tax location, or if it's thinking about the taxes and opportunities to optimize through selections of different deals and the consequence of different things like that, you know, that's, that's really where you can make magic. And that's really where you can grow the type of clientele that you can get. But it's, it is different. And it might, it's definitely not for everybody, but when you're there, you're committed. You need to be able to scale that commitment.
0: All right. I'm going to change gears a little bit here as we're coming to the end of our time a bit, but I love to ask questions about things outside of our space and our industry, and also just connect further with our guests. So Steve, I want to talk about Rally for Rangers. You have done some really cool stuff with this organization. I know most of the people listening to this will have no idea what Rally for Rangers is. So give us a quick Rally for Rangers commercial, tell us about how you're involved with that. And then tell us about how you were, you just did like kind of a really cool thing with them where you, I think you were out on a motorcycle or something, kind of raising money for them or doing something. So yeah, quick
2: commercial on rally for Rangers and tell us about how you've been involved. Thanks Kyle. Thanks for bringing that up. Rally for Rangers is a nonprofit. It's a project under, i um, a 501 c three. And what we do is we believe in empowering park rangers to preserve the world's most special places. I think here in the United States we are privileged and I know I often take for granted that we have these protected spaces that are well-funded, state parks, national parks, etc. cetera. Uh, most places in the world, that is a unique concept. Most countries in the world, especially smaller countries, are continuously pressured, not just for their natural wildlife, but also just their natural resources by larger economies that can put pressure on them. So what Rally for Rangers does is we raise money and buy motorcycles and donate them to park rangers all over the world to allow them and empower them to better do their job. What this does is the trip that you just referenced is I was lucky enough to participate and travel to Bhutan with a group of 15 other riders. We raised money and bought 20 motorcycles For those park rangers, we got to travel through the country with those rangers, visit their different outposts and see the types of conditions that they're working in. In most cases, they were in very remote areas under conditions that are extremely difficult to navigate. And they were sharing like one truck and they're getting calls for interaction with wildlife. And that could include an elephant trampling a farmer's crops or it could you know, be something like a tiger or a bear attack or something like that. They're getting these calls and now they need to respond to the calls. And it can take a really long time. Most of them are doing this on foot. So providing them with modern, reliable transportation is a massive game changer on how quickly they can respond to these calls. You know, I got involved in it because one of the big calls to action is fighting poaching and helping reduce the impacts of poaching. Uh, but it goes so much deeper. It goes so much deeper when you can uh, give modern, reliable transportation to these park rangers to be more effective at their jobs. It's pretty incredible. Sweet. So you
1: are going to I have it up here on the screen. You're going to Namibia here in July. And yeah. I'm just looking at this and you are going to go like I see it's 2000 kilometers is what you're traveling in July in uh, Namibia. Namibia.
2: That's right. Yeah. So Namibia is unique. There's two big national parks there and almost the entire country, for those that don't know, Namibia is just north of South Africa on the west coast of Africa. And poaching is a big problem there. The almost, almost the entire economy is based on tourism to come do these safaris. And so obviously without wildlife, that becomes challenging. Um, Namibia was the last country in Africa to gain its independence just in like 1990, I believe. There's a lot of different animals there, and it's a really unique landscape. It's pretty cool. There's, you know, lions that migrate from Etosha National Park to the Skeleton Coast. They're the only lions in the world that have adapted to living in the desert. It's pretty crazy. Those national parks are really well-funded. They have great ranger services. But outside of the national parks is where you get the poaching activity, and that's where poachers will come and they will bribe locals to help them. Who we're partnering with in Namibia is a volunteer ranger organization. We're giving them these new motorcycles where they can better respond. They educate all the communities around the parks. They respond to poaching activity where people can anonymously report it. And so it's a really cool opportunity for us to provide these people who are putting their life on the line really through a volunteer organization where we get to provide them new modern motorcycles. We're going to go, we're going to learn about that. We're going to provide education and training. So I'll be conducting a one day training on how to ride in sand and dirt and, you know, be a little bit better of a rider and a little bit more safe. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Love it's pretty that. fun, man. All right. So because of this, I've got two, two final questions, fun questions for us here at the end. So. We'll stay in the United States for this, but what is the most underrated national park in the United States that people should check out if they most likely haven't?
2: My vote is Acadia National Park in Maine. Oh, okay. Good one.
1: Good
0: one. Dude, I love it's that.
2: incredible. Not been. That's, uh, yeah. See,
0: now I just marked that down. See, that's great. That's yeah. underrated. Because everybody <laughs> knows about Yellowstone and Glacier and Yosemite and Zion and all that. Which, ever look, if you haven't been to any of those people, you should go. They're incredible. But we have so many incredible national parks here in the United States, like we should go hit them
2: up. Yeah, I'll tell you. Answer, so Acadia, if you go, you can climb, you can hike or you can drive. But at a certain time of the year, I forget exactly what time of the year it is the first direct sunlight that rises that touches the united states so you can climb up to the cadillac ridge and watch the sun rise and you get to receive the very first sunlight on the united states soil for that day it's pretty cool i did a linkedin post from there a couple of years ago check that. out that's really awesome. cool
0: i love that all right cool. and then my final thing staying in theme with the rally for rangers but Dream motorcycle for you, if you were able to just take any motorcycle and ride it across the National
2: Park as a volunteer, which bike are you rolling on, Steve? Oh, man. So, I'm fortunate enough to say I own my dream motorcycle. Yes. I have a 2004 R1150 GSA. It's the best bike. Anybody who's watched The Long Way Round, it's Ewan McGregor's bike that he took on that first series where they rode from London all the way to New York City but i'll tell you for rally for rangers we don't give them their dream bikes so we buy whatever bikes are locally sourced so that they can get mechanics and parts and all that stuff but yeah the bmw r1150 gsa it's a good one the new ones are pretty great too but i like to go retro so i got the old school one i love it
0: Awesome, man. Well, I think everybody now better understands what I said at the beginning of this podcast. If you're just one of the best people at connecting with other folks, you're just a wealth of interesting knowledge and fun things like Acadia National Park being a place where it's the first sunlight that hits the United States. So Steve, I really enjoyed hanging out with you. Thanks for the work that you're doing in the industry and super thankful to know you. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Judd. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Connected. This podcast is brought to you by MileMarker and it is produced by Turncast. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps us and our show. And for more information about MileMarker and Connected, visit us at milemarker.co.